Okay, we are going to go to God's Word again this morning. This is our third such message about Joseph, the quiet hero of Christmas. That is how I consider him and his faith and obedience. As I've said before, and we'll say again this evening for a last time, uh, with all the thoughts of angels and shepherds and, and babies and all the like, and of course the baby's the star of the show, I know that, and so do you, uh, but with all the other uh, things that were going on in the nativity story, it's o- easy for us to overlook the earthly father of Jesus. And as we give brief, brief consideration again to Joseph this morning and for a, a final time uh, tonight at the 6 o'clock candlelight service, we're looking at his emotions, his plan, and then how the plan changes and his obedience. Uh, his emotions, the plan, and ultimately his obedience. So let me read for us these words, uh, just a couple of verses out of Matthew chapter 2. You do have uh, in your bulletin, I trust you received that full page insert that you may look along at these words from the English Standard Version. Remember, by the way, just the setting, the baby has been born, We've had the flight to Egypt where in God's providence by a dream he told Joseph to take his young family by night, leave immediately, go to another continent adjacent down to Africa uh, for a time because of the murderous intentions of King Herod. And so that's where they are. They are in Egypt. um, In a sense, living as foreigners, and yet there are other expatriates there, about a million or so other Jewish people down in Egypt at the time. And we pick up the story here. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. So this would be a time now for what we call a prayer of illumination where we ask God to come and do his work in our hearts and we'll remember our sisters, uh, Audrey and Pam, as well at this time. Let's pray. So Lord, Lord, first, would you hold sway in our hearts and minds Uh, We're busy. Uh, I don't know how many people do Christmas cards anymore, but everything from Christmas cards, cookies, shopping, all, all, all the rest. People to see, places to go, more activities at church, more school activities, more times gathering with friends and family. And amidst all the hustle and bustle, would you come again and prevail and take these few minutes that we spend together giving consideration to the public reading and explanation of your word, would you lead us to Christ once again as only you can do? And uh, today, as a couple of our sisters are laid aside, uh, Miss Audrey, uh, rehab facility in Lillington, would you be near to her in a way that she could receive from you? And I know that our sister uh, Pam is sad that she couldn't participate with the choir in this season, but um, 
Uh, she is looking to you even in the midst of her pain. And of course, I would pray, alleviate her pain, diminish her pain, facilitate healing, Lord. But all the while, would you continue to cause her to incline her heart upon you, the one and only Savior, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to attempt to follow the uh, five B's this morning. Be brief, baby, be brief. Uh, Joseph's emotions. By the way, part of why I want to give attention, I've already explained to you that I think that Joseph gets overlooked at Christmas time. That's one thing. The other thing is I want you to remember that these were real people. This is not a fairy tale. This isn't, you know, whatever, Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever is your sci-fi preference. These were real flesh and blood people who had real bodies and a real emotional makeups as we all do. And for that reason, I try as much as I can in my public communication to refrain from calling them biblical characters, which they are, but I think sometimes that word characters almost conveys that idea of that they're not real, that it's a, it's a story for some kind of lesson or purpose or moral, and that's nice, but they weren't real. No, this is the Bible is reliable in all that it teaches and states. And Mary, indeed, was an unplanned pregnancy, an unwed teen mother at first, until Joseph being warned by the angel was told to go ahead, not to put Mary away, not to divorce her, not to send her out in the country to stay with folks to have the baby, but to be with her. And Joseph was a real man whose heart was initially crushed. Who is it? Just tell me who it was. And then told to flee for their lives because someone's after them to kill them. And now they're living away from the promised land, away not only from their hometown, but their home country, but they're dwelling in relative safety and security. It's only right, in my mind, that we pause and give a moment's thought to what must have that been like for them, for him. Relative contentedness, uh, perhaps some homesickness, uneasy in this waiting period. We talked about it last week that he was told to go for an indefinite time, not a set time, not go there for 30 days or 12 months or what have you, which somehow mentally that helps us. If you've ever been in the uneasy position of waiting for the results of a medical test and waiting to hear from the, the doctor's office, you know, yay or nay, about things, and you don't know when you're going to hear from them, that's so uncomfortable. I mean, even if things are very problematic for us, we just do better when we know how long it's going to be. Now, Joseph didn't know how long. So there's some uneasiness, perhaps in his spirit, some restlessness, even though he and the family were safe from Herod down there in Egypt. Because he was told, as we saw last time in verse 13, to stay put until I tell you, in essence. So he's in limbo. He's in a, a season of uncertainty 
in his life. Those are Joseph's emotions as I put myself in his shoes, so to speak. Uh, and then we have Joseph's plan next. What's his plan? Well, he's obeyed thus far. His plan is further obedience. Stay put and wait. Stay put and wait for word from the Lord. That's his plan. Remain in Egypt. But of course, our verse that we've looked at each time now from the Proverbs, the man's mind plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I, I could tell you many a story, and I'm sure you could reciprocate of how God changed the plans that you put together. And that happens time and time again to this simple, humble carpenter who is a man of faith, who lived a life not of perfect obedience to the Lord, but in this story, it's impossible to give the birth narrative a reading without seeing Joseph's obedience time after time. Well, there's divine intervention in the same form that it's been coming. This is the third time now an angel brings him direct divine revelation. Now, if you and I want to know the, word, uh, the will of God, you know, sometimes I have people come to me in this day and age, they come to me and they say, Pastor, I wish I just knew God's will. I, I wish I just knew, you know, what to do. Then I do it. I wish God would, like, do some sky writing. Then I then I do it. But God doesn't do that anymore. As Hebrews 1 tells us, in these last days, God has spoken. The final word is Jesus. Jesus is the word of God come in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And we now have the full canon of Scripture. Canon, not like boom, boom, but canon meaning a, a measuring rod. We have the full measure of Scripture. 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. If you want to know God's will, my great suggestion to you is read the Bible. However, in Joseph's time, he was privy to direct divine revelation from God. The Word of God came to him supernaturally, miraculously, in a dream through a special envoy, a messenger, an angel of the Lord. This is in fulfillment of prophecy, this whole story, by the way. Letter D in your outline, prophecy fulfilled. We touched on this last week, and I'll not do much with it today, but uh, we've got the story of Herod's jealous genocide. You see, there's another king that he's heard about. Last week we talked about the flight to Egypt through the supernatural divine revelation, the way in which God used to speak to his prophets and Joseph would be numbered among them. That Herod has heard from the wise men, the magi, that a, someone who would vie for the throne, a new king of Israel has been born. Well, he's not happy at this news, although he feigns obeisance. He says, well, when you find out the details, send me an email because I want to go and worship too. But we know that's not what he meant. That's lip service 
his heart was unchanged. He had murderous intentions. And it's called the, the murder of the innocents. Uh, that story also in our text, in Matthew 2, where all the children in uh, surrounding Bethlehem from birth to two years old. By the way, when we read the Christmas narratives in, in Luke and in Matthew, that's all we got. Luke and Matthew, we tend to compress the time frame in our minds, don't we? We do it in a Christmas nativity. You put on a pageant, a play about Christmas, and we, we make the whole thing happen in a matter of, you know, a day or three. Well, months have transpired, you know, at this point. But Herod, overkill is probably not the most sensitive word to use, but that's what it was. All the male children in the area of Bethlehem, and we think of Bethlehem, oh, Bethlehem, that's famous. That's where Jesus was born. That must be a big place. It's a hamlet. It's a little village. And back at that time was even smaller. And all the baby boys, maybe 15 of them, maybe 30 of them, around that village of Bethlehem were put to death because of the excessive, bloodthirsty, lust for power from Herod. So in redemptive history, what we're approaching now is the return from Egypt. The return from Egypt, which is like a second exodus. God's people came out of slavery in Egypt four centuries of that, 430, just to be specific. And they wandered in the wilderness because of further disobedience and rebellion before finally entering the promised land under the leadership by that point, not of Moses, but of Joshua. But Jesus and his family return all the way right away and with a happy spirit to the promised land. And then Jesus soon, Matthew tells us, uh, when he grows up, he goes into the desert, not for 40, but for 40 days, and continually resists temptation from the devil by the power of the Spirit, and according to the Word of God. He renders perfect obedience in this second exodus. Uh, my reference in uh, parentheses there, Jeremiah 31, our, our call to worship this morning came to us from Jeremiah 33. In Jeremiah 31, there's promise of a new covenant that comes right on the heels of this weeping in Ramah that Matthew is talking about here with the slaughter of the innocents. But he talks about how mourning, not mourning like AM, but mourning with a U in it, sadness, grief, mourning will be turned to joy. That there will be a time of restoration. Now it's, under, it's only partial for those in the Old Testament following Jeremiah, but it's realized ultimately in Christ in the gospel and uh, Hebrews 8 gives us commentary about that that Jesus indeed ushered in the new covenant in which he would write his word on our hearts and we would have forgiveness of sins through the one and only Savior we hasten on point E in your outline Joseph's obedience uh, he rose and returned okay so he's in limbo He's in this indefinite period of waiting. Go, stay there till I tell you. 
till you get word. Well, now word comes. So what's he do? He gets up. He rose and returned. He obeyed the angel all the way. He acted right away, and he did so with a happy spirit. That was our parenting philosophy when my kids were young, as I've mentioned to you. But it was a reality in Joseph's life as well. R.C. Sproul points out that the New Testament talks um, about angels more than it talks about sin, more than it talks about, more than the New Testament talks about love. Much mention of angels, these special messengers, particularly before the completion of the New Testament and the time of the apostles. He obeyed the angel all the way. We saw um, a couple of a couple of weeks ago, how he married Mary. He exercised self-control. He named the child, not with a family name, not after his, earth, uh, 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 his earthly father, but in accordance with the heavenly vision, named the child Jesus. He obeyed the angel all the way. He acted right away. Last week, we talked about how he rose, ran, and remained in Egypt. Get up and go. He woke and went. Take the child and his mother. Interesting there that Christ has the preeminence, not Mary. He did so with a happy spirit, a good attitude, not grudgingly, not grumbling, but recognizing that God's word is more true than how he felt. So message by message in this little series, Joseph the Quiet Hero of Christmas, we're talking about Joseph's emotional makeup, how he was affected as a man, as a human being, and yet he gave priority to the Word of God. God's Word is more true than how you or I feel as well. Well, before we finish, we're going to look very briefly at the example of Saul. Um, it's also on the back of your sermon outline. I think I'll not read it for two reasons. One, in the interest of time. I told you I'd be brief this morning. Second, because we were there just a few weeks ago before our Christmas series. And by the way, we're continuing our sermon series, The Rise of the King, starting next Sunday. December 31st, where we left off before Advent and the holidays and all that, and I had a little time away, was we left off with the story of David and Goliath. And the moral of that story, by the way, is not, well, you're like David, so be brave like David. The moral of that story, if you will, is you're not David. You're the trembling armies of God. So be glad that God raised up a deliverer, a king, like David, and be glad that he raised up the ultimate Davidic king, the son of David, Jesus, who conquers the giant and the enemies for us. Anyway, exploring obedience, we've got the example of King Saul, the first king of Israel here. And what do we see if we were to examine his life, as I said, as we did just a few weeks ago? Well, we see instead of Joseph's obedience, all the way, right away, happy spirit, we see instead incomplete obedience. 
That's your first bullet point under letter F, exploring obedience, the example of Saul. That means King Saul from the Old Testament, not Saul who became Paul the Apostle. Incomplete obedience is no obedience at all. In this turning point story, 1 Samuel 15, where he loses not only... um, Well, actually, Saul's kingship himself goes on for a total of 40 years. But the throne is going to depart from his family. His heirs are going to lose the right to reign. He protests that he did obey, but he didn't do so all the way. Just as it says in the New Testament in James chapter 2, if you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, but one point, You're guilty of the whole thing. It all rises or falls together. So incomplete obedience is no obedience at all. Second, he blame-shifted and tried to cloak it in religion. He blame-shifted. Remember, the people pounced on the plunder. The people and the soldiers did it, he says. It wasn't me. It was the people. The people wanted to do this, so I just kind of permitted them. In order to sacrifice, he says to the prophet, in order to sacrifice to the Lord your God, not my God. Saul's not a partaker at this point. You see, because the third bullet point, he was more concerned about his reputation than obeying the Lord. He was a people pleaser. You remember that in the story? That when the prophet pronounces judgment on him, that his heirs will lose that right to rule. They will reign no more. After him, the kingdom has been uh, given over to someone who is better than him. Who is that? David. What does the king do? He grovels. He, he grasps at straws. Well, he actually grasps at the prophet's robe and tears it. And Samuel offers a further word, just as in the same way. The kingdom has been torn from you this day. He was more concerned about his reputation than obeying the Lord. He tears the robe. He says, and even even his confession of sin is found wanting. He says, I have sinned, but go up and honor me before the people uh, that I may worship the Lord. He tags that on because it's always good to throw a little religion in there anyway, right? For cover. To obey is better than sacrifice. And we are saved by Christ's active obedience. Your fifth bullet point. There's so many bullet points under the final point there. I probably should have numbered them for you. The last one. We are saved by Christ's active obedience. When you ask Christians, well, how how am I saved? Usually the kind of answer we give is, well, you accept Christ into your heart or something like that. You've got to believe in Jesus little better. Well, well, yeah, but we are saved by what Jesus did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're saved because of what Jesus did on the cross. Well, yeah, but don't quit there. How about his resurrection from the dead? You can't separate the two. The crucifixion from the resurrection. Don't separate them. They must always go together. That's how you're saved. But then we overlook Jesus' life. His life of perfect obedience. Only Jesus can say that he obeyed the Father all the way 
right away, ultimately with a happy spirit, even through a troubled spirit at points, at moments, in his true humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane. So instead of reading that first Samuel passage, I'll read one cross-reference to you from Romans 5. Uh, just a little paragraph, starting at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, the one trespass is a reference to Adam and Eve in the garden, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, who's that? Adam. The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, who's that? The new Adam, Jesus. The many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ's obedience makes us righteous. Remember in the children's sermon, the point I was trying to convey to them is we don't obey God to find approval through Jesus being given to us as a gift of grace. We are credited as having His perfect record of righteousness. And then that constrains us to a changed life. The result of that, the fruit of that, the evidence of that saving faith then in Jesus is a life of new obedience. But let's not put the cart before the horse. Christ's obedience, one who makes us perfect, is righteous, uh, makes us righteous. We are free from trying to obey in order to gain God's approval. Instead, we are free to obey because we have God's approval. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. We tend to focus on the cross work. It is finished. We're amazed, like all the rest of humanity, at his resurrection but help us not to take for granted how he perfectly obeyed the Father at every turn and even to the point of death on a cross uh, for us. We thank you that in him we have life. Thank you also for the example of faith of that man, Joseph, that you raised up to be the earthly daddy to our Savior King. Thank you that we can learn from him as well. We pray in Jesus' name.